you're under 29, maybe 28, barely, uh, you may not have any memory of that. 22-year-olds were born that year. 22 years, that just uh, seems so quick, and yet it seems much like yesterday that America was attacked on September 11th, 2001, um, and the World Trade Towers and the attempted, and also the Pentagon, and also the attempted uh, attack that led to the crash in the fields of Pennsylvania. You know, it's always interesting how um, when you think back, if you remember those, really that first several weeks, month maybe, uh, there was such a unity among, remember the picture of the senators and the congressmen out on the Capitol steps? Uh, I don't know if they were embraced, but they were singing and there was uh, a unity there. Uh, uh, and people uh, suddenly began to return back to their churches or go to the church or go to church for the first time. Um, there was just a, a real unusual, I think for the most part, I remember that day uh, getting dressed uh, to go to the office that I was doing some work in. I was church planting in Chicago, and I remember uh, just hearing on the Today Show that a plane crashed into the World Trade Center, but they didn't know anything. It was the first plane, and they said, I don't know if it's a little private plane, and you, you just thought somebody, you know, just a you know, terrible tragedy. And then in, within minutes later, the, oh my gosh, another plane. And then it was like, I remember sitting on the edge of the bed just staring and then going downstairs and the TV on and just, you know, you were just, you just were stunned. Now, I know some of you, uh, th that was a pivotal point uh, in my generation, the landing on the moon, that was probably another one in my generation. Yes, I'm that old. And, uh, but some of you, the Kennedy assassination, you know exactly where you were, uh, the classroom or whatever the situation, you, you remember that event, the tragedy of that event. Well, on 22 years ago, flags suddenly went up. Flags went up and young men went to war. Some of you joined the military service. At that time, there was such an outpouring of a sense of anger and uh, emotions. Of it was, a, it was, again, remains a significant marker uh, in America's history. And uh, America was attacked. America was in crisis. But I believe that America is still under attack. I still believe that America is still in a war, in a crisis. But we don't fight it with flesh and blood, do we? But it's a spiritual battle that we're engaged in that remains. And I would say, while the enemy has always sought to destroy America, I would say probably significantly, if you trace it back the last 65 years, we have been in a free fall, morally, spiritually, in our nation. And I believe that we are now seeing much 
and reaping much of what has been sowed uh, in our nation, especially the last 65 years. So the question this morning and the title of the message this morning is what America needs, what America needs. And if I were to ask that question, I'm sure we'd get a lot of different responses. But, you know, the Bible speaks about, while it doesn't use the word revival, it talks about reviving, refreshing, uh, the Bible does talk about when God will pour out His Spirit and show mercy and grace and bring a reviving, if you will, to people who seek Him, who people who repent of their sin. Probably the passage that is most often quoted, and I don't have a problem using it in reference to America. I know that uh, 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 is not speaking about the United States. I know it's about uh, Israel. I understand that. But I also believe, just like many other things in the Bible, there are principles that are universal that any nation that exercises God's principles or any person can benefit from the truth that is taught there. Uh, on the screen in your, your Bibles, it won't be their main passage, but Second Chronicles 7, and I just want to begin at verse 10. This is going to be the main passage. This will be a little different message. We'll be back in John 19 next week. But I just felt, praying this week, I just felt in, in light of tomorrow's day and close proximity to the Lord's day, I just kind of felt my heart drawn to talk about some things uh, concerning uh, what America needs. And the passage, uh, by way of introduction, Second Chronicles 7, and this is at the dedication by Solomon of the temple, and I'm just going to pick it up at verse 10. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people, Solomon, away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that Yahweh, the Lord, had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. Thus Solomon, the son of David, who now was king over a united monarchy still, it hadn't divided. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord. David had had the vision and the plans, and Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make it to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. And then Yahweh appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And then in verse 13, it's like the Lord is giving a uh, a prophetic warning because I think, you know, certainly the Lord knows the heart of man and the heart of Israel. And it's, he's, he's giving Solomon, and of course by the recording of the word of the Lord, um, a heads up of what is ahead, but also a remedy. Verse 13, the Lord says, remember he's speaking to Solomon, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land. Remember, this is an aggregate culture, agricultural. No rain, no locusts eating your crop. I mean, you're, 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 you have famine, devastation, uh, the dependency. So when there is no rain, he's talking about judgment. When I shut up the heaven, 
Shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. This is the Lord says, when I judge you, because the Lord knows the heart of disobedience, what do we do in times of judgment? Verse 14, now we read it in context. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. There's a shut up heaven. It's heaven is closed. But the Lord says, you want an open heaven? Here's what you do. And then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The Bible tells us in Psalm 80 verse 3, speaking again, just select songs, psalms or verses that speaks about restore us, O God, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. In Psalm 85 verse 4, the same sentiment is expressed in Psalm 85 verse 4, restore us, O God, our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. Verse 5, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? And verse 6, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? You know, revival, uh, if, you're, if, a, if you're an unbeliever, you don't need reviving. You, you, need, uh, you need regeneration. Reviving is for those who have been revived. Revival is what God does among His people, the church. God saves the lost. And once they're God's people, again, it's a reviving of His presence, of His joy, of His ways among God's people. That is, you see that continually throughout the Old Testament. But the Bible also tells us that we are to seek Him in times of judgment. And I believe that America, we're not awaiting judgment. We've been under God's judgment for quite a while. We are in the judgment of God. But it's interesting as you study American history, even among the history of God's movements and revivals, you'll see that America has a history of God sovereignly moving. I have that on the screen. America has a history of God sovereignly moving in what is called revival. Revival is God's work. It's not us doing X, Y, Z, and then God does this. Uh, revival, a reviving, a refreshing, a uh, awakening, whatever term, there's various terms that are used, that's God's initiative. That's God's work. And so the Bible tells us that God will heal our land, but there are conditions that set the environment. But it, when we talk about the history in America, uh, let me just, and these are on your outline, so this won't be on the screen. That slide will stay up for a while. But in your uh, listener's guide, I have these there. Use that listener's guide, so that'll help you stay awake. It'll help you stay engaged. Check your phone so your phone doesn't ring. Uh, and take advantage of the time to listen to the word of the Lord and hear the word of the Lord and, and apply it to our lives. An engaged listener is someone who's serious 
about learning and listening to what God is doing in the moment of our worship here this morning. So I just have those written out, and then we're going to go back and look at a scripture in Isaiah 40. But let me just talk to you a moment, a little bit about uh, different things about revival in the history of America. Number one is the Bible, as I said, has no word for revival, but does show that there is a pattern. The Old Testament documents several times as I've read just from the Second Chronicles and various other ones you can look at, uh, that, that God revives the spiritual life of His people. That God will bring a refreshing, a renewing, if you will. While there's no single Hebrew word for revival, one of the things we do learn from the Old Testament is we do see revival patterns. We see patterns of how God works. And so there's no, again, word, but we do look for patterns in the Old Testament, and uh, we see those, again, evidence in the way that God works in, in the church and, and even in America in our times past. Also, secondly, there's no consensus on exactly what revival is. It's kind of like the one preacher said, well, I can't tell you what it is, but I sure know what it ain't. Uh, and so revival, I like the definition, and again, all this that I'm reading here now is in your handout. So uh, J.I. Packer defined rival, a revival as God's quickening, this is a number two, as God's quickening visitation of his people, touching their hearts, and deepening his work of grace in their lives. It's God's quickening visitation of his people. We know God is omnipresent. Some people get hung up and say, why are you asking God to visit or be with us? I mean, he's always present. Yeah, I get it. Okay, smarty, I get it. But the Bible also talks about an invoking of God's special grace in our midst. Okay, so there's nothing contradictory there. Touching uh, hearts. And so I, I like that definition. And about somebody else said that revival is the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a more vital spiritual life. Uh, talking about revival in America, thirdly, revivals lead to renewals, movements, and awakenings. Sometimes uh, you'll see those words uh, used interchangeably. Revival, revivalism, awakening, movements, all those things. I think a helpful distinction somebody gave that I thought was helpful to me is that renewal is something God does when God touches the heart of a single individual, but revival is when God touches a, a corporate group, a body, a church, a nation, uh, when revival occurs. It affects the wider community and society when we talk about revival versus personal renewal. In American history, number four, the first great awakening, what was defined as the first great awakening, birthed what we would call American evangelical Christianity. The benefit of what we have here in America, really the birthing of that on these shores was referred to as the Great Awakening, and that happened between the 1730s and the 1760s. People like Jonathan Edwards certainly was a very prominent uh, individual uh, in, in that movement. And the Great Awakening was a series of revivals of the preaching of God's Word that were being done throughout the very early stages, even before 
uh, the United States was um, the Declaration of Independence in 1776, you see that God was laying that spiritual foundation. You see that God was cultivating a soil that would be ripe and healthy for the gospel of what he was doing. And that was prior to the American Revolution. And so that was the birthing. The revivals uh, helped emphasize in that, that period of time of that young nation. People say, well, America is not a Christian nation. Well, I, de- I defy that premise because when you go back and look at our history, you will see clearly that the founders uh, understood that this nation was unique and special and birthed and gifted by God. Does that mean everybody was a Christian and that founded and signed the Declaration of Independence? No, nobody's saying that. But when you go back and you look at the principles that guided these men, even men who weren't necessarily overtly what we would call evangelical Christians, there still was an understanding that America was, was special and that the covenant that God uh, made with, uh, with Israel, that there was a benefit of how that uh, when Abraham, or rather George Washington, took the oath of office and he laid his hand on the Bible and raised his right hand, his, his hand was laid upon there in Genesis chapter 12 or, verse, or chapter 15 of the Abrahamic covenant. Because he understood that America, as America would honor God, as God would honor uh, the truths of the Word of God, that America would be set under the blessings of God. And so you see that rich history there. But the revivals helped to cultivate a spiritual soil and an environment by which the gospel could be preached around the world. Think about it. What nation has taken the gospel of Jesus Christ to more corners of the world than has come from the United States of America? None. That was the first great awakening. Number five, there was a second, what they called, historians called a great awakening. uh, And that was about 50 years later. uh, And the second great awakening led to certain social reforms and new religious movements. Interesting, it was the Methodists and the Baptists that really took the lead role in these revivals during the Second Great Awakening that helped spread Christianity to the frontiers of the United States, that expanded the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. Uh, The awakening led to the significant growth in the Methodist movement founded by John Wesley. And from about 20 churches in 1776 to more than 19,000 Methodist churches by the time of the Civil War. And there was an emphasis upon the, the, the Holy Spirit. There was an emphasis upon the work of the gospel that was happening. And so God was, was doing a great thing and stirring up the foundations. Now, keep in mind, remember the first great awakening of revivals that took place was prior to the Revolutionary War. The second great awakening happened, a great move of God happened just prior to 1861 when the Civil War began. Sometimes the reviving, the spiritual awakening that God may do in a church or a nation, we think, oh, that means we're just on for blessings for the next 
20, 50 years? No. It could be a premonition that trouble is ahead and God is looking to spiritually revive His people in preparation for what's ahead. I think both of those serve an example of that. Number six observation of American history is that prayer was significant in these revivals, and that began with prayer. One example was, uh, again, how prayer was initiated by non-clergy, by just regular people, businessmen. One example was in 1857. Again, this is prior to when the Civil War began and was fought between 1861 and 1865. In 1857, a lay missionary, that means he wasn't an ordained minister, clergy, by the name of Jeremiah Calvin Lamphere, and he began to host a one-hour lunchtime prayer meeting in New York City in 1857. On the first day, only six men showed up. By the next year, over 10,000 men were praying daily for what became known as the Businessmen's Revival that lasted between in that year of 1857 and 58. Prior to when America would be torn apart of a civil war, God was spiritually moving among His people, among His uh, churches. Uh, the seventh observation is that in the history of revival in America is that a revival in Los Angeles at the beginning of the 20th century birthed what was identified as the Pentecostal movement. Uh, a black, uh, uneducated, I don't say that, he didn't have any formal education, by the name of William Seymour, pastored a church on Azusa Street and it was, became a harbinger, if you will, of a tremendous move of God that was birthed there in Los Angeles. And it continued for several years that people came from all over the country. Churches were planted. There was a unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, and again, when you look at history, and especially among the uh, movements that are marked by uh, more of the gifts of the Spirit, listen you're always going to find excesses. You can go back to Jonathan Edwards and find him warning about extremes and excesses. But that does not mean that there's not legitimate uh, move and, and awakenings that God is doing in that period. So don't get distracted. Anything's an extreme. Anything can be an extreme. But don't get distracted. And God was certainly doing a major revival that was the birth of Many Pentecostal denominations, and some of you uh, were part of the Assemblies of God, or maybe still are, and that was where the Assemblies of God, their roots are traced out there from Azusa Street. Assemblies of God is the world's largest uh, Pentecostal denomination. Number eight, later on, as we move up into the 60s, uh, you may have seen the movie Jesus Revolution. Uh, in the 60s, you see with the counterculture of what was going on in the nation, Vietnam and uh, all the, the things that were happening in the nation at that time, God was on the move. So my point is, <laughs> I get off track here, is don't be distracted by all the bad stuff. Don't think that somehow God is asleep. God 
is moving even in the midst where there's great evil, God's Spirit is moving and God is still moving today and the work of God is still moving forward. And so here in the 1960s when it seemed like, again, our nation was going to be an upheaval, 1968 was probably one of the worst years since the Civil War that you had Martin Luther King assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy uh, that was assassinated. You had the Vietnam War that began to turn, and, and America knew that it was a hopeless cause the way we were going about it. Uh, the college campuses, uh, people were being shot for protests. It was a terrible, terrible time in America. But it was as I preached that message several uh, weeks back about Jesus' revolution, it was also in the midst of all that chaos and turmoil that God was birthing a revival uh, at this little church in Costa Mesa, California with a guy by the name of Chuck Smith, a middle-aged bald guy, so there's hope for uh, middle-aged bald guys. But it wasn't based on personality and charisma or any of those things. I mean, Chuck Smith, you ever listen to him, he, he's, not a, he's kind of a dry but he began to teach the Bible, and he just, you know what he did? He made himself, if you saw the movie, it, it gives a, a pretty good account of that. But he just, he just made himself available to be used by God. His wife had a burden by seeing all these barefoot, long-haired, you know, some of you were and maybe still have a heart of a hippie. I know that. I know that. But God, but God burdened his wife. And he began to reluctantly open his church uh, to these, this countercultural, and it caused some people in the church to leave. They didn't want any part of it. God was doing something in the, this, what became identified as the Jesus movement. And what was so significant about that, it was that large droves of young people, maybe many of you here today, that were came to the Lord, and all of a sudden now they begin to develop music that they could relate to that, that was part of that culture that honored and worshiped God. So uh, when you're listening to Joy FM, it all goes back to Costa Mesa in the beginning there when he allowed, when he allowed some of these hippies to come in and play their music. And when he asked them about could they play on Sunday, I don't know if you remember in the movie, but it's a true story, they say, well, I think so, but... Um, our, one of, our drummer is on parole, and I think he can get out of jail on Sunday morning and be to the church in time to play. I mean, that was kind of the background they came out of, but they loved the Lord. Maybe their exterior was a little rough, but they loved God, and God was doing a great thing in the midst, and that was going to affect the nation. And the last observation there is how colleges have been a primary location for revivals. In February of this year, God outpoured His Spirit in a, in a major way at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Some of you don't even know about it because you don't, you don't pay attention to the real news of what God is doing. And for, I don't know, three weeks, the college was basically shut down by students having a desire to pray and seek God and Worship God. Now, I know some of you cynics would say they just wanted to get out of taking those final exams. That might have been, I had, would have had to judge my own <laughs> heart there. But it was a real deal. People went there and said, look, this isn't based around some personality or some gimmickry or whatever. In fact, 
when Fox News and everybody wanted to go there and do all these stories and different people, celebrity, Christians, whatever that is, that's a contradiction. But, you know, all these people wanted to go there and, and connect and be a part of it. You know what they told them? They said, stay away. There was a purity there of just young people seeking God in prayer and worshiping the Lord. And so that just recently that that happened. Uh, interesting, back in Yale in 1802, Yale is not a bastion of Christianity <coughs> today, but back in 1802, God did a revival at Yale where one-third of the student body, which at the time would have been about 230, professed faith in Christ. God did a revival at Yale in the 50s, Wheaton College, uh, where Billy Graham had gone to college there years before, experienced a tremendous revival that got the attention of Time magazine, and there was a surge of confession and pouring themselves out to God. You look at all that, and you're like, is that all over? Is, there, is that all done? That We're never going to see anything like that again? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that God still responds to people that are hungry. I'm going to say that again for the rest of you. I still believe that God responds to people that are hungry for Him. And if you're not hungry or desirous for Him, guess what? He'll leave you alone. He'll leave you alone. He, he's not, again, I'm not talking about salvation per se, but I'm talking about churches that believe they've got a corner on how to do church. If they've got a corner where, you know what, we don't really need, we don't really don't, they would never say this, but you know, we've got this thing down pretty tight, and uh, we know how this thing works. We're really, there, there's no room for God to do anything special or unusual in our lives. We just kind of, we've got a fine-tuned machine. I don't want to be a fine-tuned machine. I sometimes need to be taken out of commission and get worked on every once in a while, right? And you do too. And that's part of that refreshing of what God can do. So let me go back to the premise of my title. What does America need? You say, well, we need a new president. Well, I might agree with you, but let me tell you something. That probably won't, that'll change some things, but they're not going to change what America really needs. There might be a little more movement here or there, but ultimately that's not the answer. I remember when we thought we'd elect Ronald Reagan, everything, abortion would just go away overnight. I'm just saying that America, yes, be involved in politics, that's a benefit and a blessing God has, but don't put your hope in who's running for president. Don't put your hope in some man or woman, that is. America needs righteous leaders, yes, yes, but ultimately, what does America need? America in a most simple way, America needs God. America needs God. America needs to uh, plead for God's mercy and His grace to heal our land. And it's easy to get pessimistic and say, well, you know what? We're just too far gone. And it's easy to say, we're too far gone. But you know what? When I look out at you and I see about Asbury and I see what different things that are happening among God's people, I say, you know what, just like I'm not going to uproot and kill that plant that looks like it's near death. Why? Because I see a little green sprout on the end of that twig there. And you know what that tells me? That tells me there's still life there. There's still life. And I believe there's still life in God's church and among God's people. Does the Bible speak about 
towards the latter days prior to the return of Christ, that there will be a, 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 a weakening and, and, a, and a things growing from bad to worse? Yes. But that doesn't preclude the fact that God, as I just said in those historical uh, examples I gave, that prior to a terrible event like the Revolutionary War, I say terrible in the sense of the killing and the violence, but good in the sense of the aftermath, the Civil War, that God was doing some of His best work in preparing God's people before the crisis. And I believe that God still has hope for America. The hope is not in a political party or a political candidate, but the hope is in God. And the God has given us, I believe, principles by which we can certainly not make revival happen, but I believe there's principles that we can learn from. So this morning... Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm just going to comment very briefly on each of these. It's on the back of your handout. But Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, and this in, in the fulfillment of the New Testament, uh, precluded or prophesied the work of John the Baptist, um, who was preparing the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus. But Isaiah chapter 40, this morning, that we'll look at briefly, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let me note with me just very briefly here. Note with me. Four aspects that I see that I see as a pattern of revival. And again, revival is a sovereign work of God. We do not make revival happen. Let me read that again. I think that might be a slide. Revival is a sovereign work of God. We don't make revival happen any more than we make an apple tree grow. You hear what I'm saying? You plant the apple tree, you scream and yell and, and, and play, play music and do everything. But you know what you do with, with a tree? You know what you do with any plant or something that you want to see grow? You know what? You make the soil healthy. You, you cultivate the environment, the soil, the atmosphere. And I believe there's principles that we cultivate a spiritual atmosphere, a spiritual soil, if you will, for God to move among his people. One more statement here before we look at these. Revival is the return of the people of God to the word of God in the house of God by the power of God according to the plan of God under the direction of God and thus receiving the blessings of God. You see it's a work of God. Look at these real quickly. Number 1, and these are from Isaiah verse uh, chapter 40 verse Four, just one verse there that we see, I believe, a pattern if we desire. If America needs revival, church, I believe there's a pattern here for us to take some lessons from. Number one is every valley shall be exalted. And if you're using your notes there, this is the filling process. This is the filling process. Verse four, every valley shall be be exalted. This is the filling process that God does in making a valley when he says every valley shall be exalted. Okay, is that slide up 
are you there? It's the next one. There we go. This is the filling process. What is a valley? It's a crevice. It's a cavity. It's a low place. In our lives, we have valleys in our life. We have empty places in our life. We have places that have become empty. And you know what a cavity is? But it, it, what it is, it's become, it's become an empty hole because of rottenness. You know, that's what happens in our lives. Rottenness of this world and the culture creates these empty places spiritually in our lives. And the Bible is saying that, that when God moves, that every valley shall be exalted. I don't know what your valley is. It might be a valley of failure or hardship you're experiencing or financial, marriage, it's some places has become like that cavity that, is, that the rottenness of something has, has gotten in there and rotted it and made it an empty hole, and, and, uh, and it needs the filling of God. God says that I'm going to fill the valleys. They shall be exalted. They shall be uh, filled up. And he says again, if, how does this happen? If my people, that's conditional, if my people... You were called by my name. Notice secondly, in verse 4, every valley should be exalted and every mountain should be made low. Secondly, and every mountain and hill, verse 4, brought low. This is what I call the leveling process. This is the leveling process. You know, there are roadblocks in our lives that God has trouble moving in our lives. I mean, if I don't want to say, you know, God, but they're, but they're roadblocks that we've allowed. And we've created roadblocks that are hindering the work of God from happening in our life. And certainly there are roadblocks in our nation that are hindering. You know, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, the writer of Hebrews, in talking about those Israelites that wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, says that they could not enter. That means enter into the promised land. They could not enter because of what? Unbelief. They did not trust God. And they failed to enter into the blessings of God. And so outside of maybe Joshua, Caleb, and a few others, God had to raise up a whole other generation to enter into the promise and blessing that he had given what are the roadblocks? It might just be a spiritual slothfulness, laziness. Maybe holding on to a sinful habit. Pride, indifference, self-will, wrong priorities. Just in an unmotivated spiritual life. You're just unmotivated. You're here and your mind's clicking in some other world, some other direction. There's just, there's just no hunger or desire there. It might be selfish selfishness, greed, depression, some of those low points in our life. Hebrews 12.1 in the New Living Translation says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great, such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. You're getting ready to enter into a race, or you're running a race in the Olympics, you don't see them out there with their backpacks and their headphones and all this stuff. Why? Because that'll weight them down. We're trying to run the race using that as a metaphor that, that the Word of God gives. And we need to loosen and, and not be weighted down by these areas in our life that are, that are hindrances 
Again, what is your obstacle this morning? What's the obstacle in our country? We've got lots of obstacles. And sometimes it seems overwhelming, but the mountains will be level. God has a spiritual bulldozer that he can bring in, and he can level out all the bumps in in the road of our life. And he can level out all the rough places, the bumps and the things that have become the mountains. What is a mountain? It's a mountain is a, is a major obstacle. Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard, as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be thou removed. A mountain is a massive obstacle. We say, God, we see obstacles all before us. We don't see how you can change anything in our nation, in our lives. But when God's Spirit moves in, when God brings the move and the refreshing of His Holy Spirit into our lives among His people, that there's a leveling. The mountains will be made low. Notice thirdly, in verse 4, pattern of God's reviving work. The crooked will be made straight. The crooked will be made straight. (coughs) Verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places, what? This is the straightening process. This is the straightening process. Uh, Is Arnie here? Is Arnie here? He's goofing off today? Okay. Well, Arnie, uh, I was thinking about when he had knee surgery. And some of you have had knee surgery. He did have, he did have knee surgery, right? Evie? No, he didn't. Some, who had knee surgery recently? You did. Okay. And who else? Jaunty. All right. Maybe. Sorry. Arnie had other parts moved. <laughs> I can't keep up with, uh, with him. But you know, one of the things that they want you to do is they want that straightening and exercising of that, that, that whatever it is, knee or shoulder, whatever. Because if you don't do that, you know, it can, it can get stiff and, and unusable, but that's that, and I'm only asking this not by personal experience, but I'm saying that oftentimes that early straightening can be a very painful process. You know, when God begins to straighten out some crooked areas in your life, it can be, it can be painful. And one of the ways that he does it, James reminds us, is counted all joy when various trials, testings come into your life because they are meant to produce a perseverance. They're meant to straighten out those areas in your life and that when you allow the straightening of God, when it's done its full work, that's when the blessing of God is. But a lot of times we bail and give up because the straightening process is too painful. Well, the Bible says that part of God's reviving work and awakening is he makes the crooked straight. I think about some of those meandering back roads up in Tennessee or western North Carolina that just crooked and meandering. Well, God has a way of straightening out the things in our life. Listen, if I put a piece of paper on the copier and it's crooked, guess what every copy is going to have? It's going to be crooked. And you know what? Those crooked areas and patterns in your life, maybe they were developed and brought down in in crooked patterns 
from granddaddy and grandma and daddy and mama and you just picked up on all those crooked patterns that you brought into your life and your marriage and family. Well, guess what? Just like that piece of paper on the copier that's producing copies, guess what? If you don't allow God to straighten those areas out, guess what? Your little copies, those, those little kids in your household, guess what? They're going to have the marks of all that crooked behavior that they've seen in mom and dad's life. This is something God does. God straightens it out. You see, we want to get legalistic and say, okay, here's 10 things to straighten out. And there, there's certainly principles we can draw from that. But this is something that is a work of God. God does the straightening out. You know, sometimes when you, look, you may look at somebody's life and you think, why can't my life just be a smooth, even road like them? But what you don't know is all the crooked straightening out that God has done in their life and He's continuing to do in their life. You see, this is the work of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 should be on the screen. Galatians 5, you remember this, but listen, keep it in, with this in mind of how God uses His Spirit and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to straighten out these crooked places. He says in verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these, flesh and Spirit, they're contrary to each other. So that you do not do the things you wish, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And he gives some crooked ways and patterns that we picked up before being born again, before the work of the Spirit. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. These are crooked patterns, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, and just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the crooked ways. But here's the straightening that the Holy Spirit brings. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That means... To get these produced in your life, you can't do those by your, you can't do those yourself. You need an outside presence. You need an outside uh, uh, work that God does to come inside and fill us and work in us. And those, verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If, conditional, if, 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 if we live in the Spirit let us also walk in the Spirit. When you're walking in an upright, godly life and the fruit of the Spirit is working your life, guess what? God will take those crooked ways, those crooked paths, even those crooked tendencies for you to walk crooked, and He'll straighten your life out. But it's conditioned if, if you walk in the Spirit. That's not a one-time deal. That's a continual step, process of dependency on Christ daily in our life. The valleys will be filled. Revival, what happens when it comes, revival happens in our life and our nation. Valleys are filled. Mountains are made level. The crooked is made straight. And the last is the rough places 
is made plain. Verse 4, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. I like uh, the NIV says in verse 4 of the NIV, the rugged places a plain. When it says a plain, it means that Instead of it being a, a, a you know, obstacle filled, a rough place that you... That, remember what he says in verse 3, make a highway unto the Lord. He's saying we're to do that. We're to make a highway. We're to prepare ourselves and, for the coming of the Lord. And the Lord, you, those things that you say are, are, are too, too, too much of a hindrance, the Lord says I'm going to make those rough places like an even smooth plain. I don't mean plain like vanilla, but a plain, a flat place, an easy traveled road for the work of the Lord to take place in our life, in our church. And this is what is called the smoothing process, the reviving of God's presence. Listen, America needs a spiritual awakening to serve as a spiritual bulldozer, to smooth out, level out and smooth out those places that have become too rough in our nation. And when I think about America, and I think about the needs that we have as a nation. I mean, na- needs as a nation, real, real world issues that, that families and people, God, can you do anything? Can you, can you take those rough places and Bring a smoothing out so that a highway of the Lord can move again. Not just in our churches, even though that's the primary way God's going to do it. But how many of you know that God is desiring that His highway of His presence moves in the, the White House, right? The Capitol, the state governments. Listen, God, in one sense, used to be welcomed in those places. Listen, God can smooth out the tragedy that has become our public school system. God can smooth out the horrendous entertainment industry that makes billions on pornography. God can smooth out the issues in our government and the confusion of our government. What about our health care industry? And I'm not talking about health care so you get cheap pills. I'm talking about uh, where it prioritizes abortion gender mutilation of changing somebody's gender is that health care i don't think so how about the priorities to provide care and protection for children and senior adults can god smooth out those ways how about helping the poor not just warehouse them and throw money at them what about really giving people hope what about the racial divide that still plagues this nation yes race is still a problem. What about the enormous waste of money and God-given resources that our nation has been blessed with and we waste it and squander it? We give billions of dollars to countries that hate our guts. Where's the logic in that? How about a military that's trained and focused to protect us against enemies, foreign and domestic, instead of worrying about what your gender pronoun is? We need a war-like mindset on drug cartels that are killing and poisoning our nation with fentanyl. I was reading overdose, de- overdose 
overdose deaths in the United States are tied to the powerful synthetic opioid fentanyl soared 279% between 2016 and 2021. The CDC estimates there's at least 150 per day related deaths related to fentanyl. The DEA administrator told CBS, all right, these cartels are acting with calculated, deliberate treachery to get fentanyl to the United States and to get people to buy it through fake pills by hiding it in other drugs, any means they can in order to, take, to drive addiction in the United States and make money. People, there is a war. There is a war. Listen, America is under attack. And it's so easy to get riled up and start buying guns and start hoarding dried food. And Look, I'm not advocating yay or nay for all that. But I'm just here to tell you that all of that, you can do all that, but the bottom line of healing our nation goes back to the principle that God laid out in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Look at it on the screen. What does he say? If... My people, whoever you are, if you're in the Congo and you're a born-again believer, you're his people. And you want God to heal the Congo? You want God to heal the nation of Niger? You want him to heal South Africa? These are universal principles for God's people, all right? They're not just for the Jews. They're for God's people that if they will, if my people, conditional. Notice it says if. It's not an automatic thing. If my people who are called by my name, look at these three things, will humble themselves. That means you confess and admit that, God, we have a great need in our country. We need you. We act like we don't. We live like we don't. We live our lives. Is that God is just kind of something we factor in once, once or twice a month. We humble ourselves. We're confessing, God, we need you. Secondly, pray. But it isn't just any kind of prayer. Notice what it says. Pray and seek my face. That isn't just praying some written down prayers. That's praying and seeking God's face. That's an intimate calling upon the Lord. A relational dependency and calling the Lord. You know when you're talking to somebody and some kid, your child or somebody's mumbling you and you take their face and you say, look at me. Seek my face. Seek who I am. Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and do what? Turn. Repent from their wicked ways. Then, say then. Then I will hear from heaven, forget, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Listen, our land needs healing. And I'm sure that little list I rattled off, you could add 30 more things to it. Point is, it's not a Democrat thing, it's not a Republican thing, it's a spiritual thing. And if the people who claim to know God are out of touch with the real solution, you know, a scripture I didn't read earlier, and Sydney, I know I've bounced all around, I've tried to go fast, but can you go back and find 1 Peter 4.17, I think it's right before, right under the second point. There it is. You know where judgment begins? What does it say? 
For the time has come for judgment to begin where? With the Biden family. That Hunter Biden, that's where it's got to start. That rascal, that rascal, Hunter Biden, that's where, no. You know where judgment starts? With us. With us. To get our act together. To get our life together. To get serious. Quit talking and start acting like you're God's people. Pray. Seek His face. And say, God, yes, beg for God to have mercy upon our nation. Why? So that God's glory may shine forth and the purposes of God can continue for a season longer. You know, when you, the trouble is, when I look at my grandkids, I wonder if it's crazy now. If it's crazy now. We live in an evil day. But God is in no way intimidated. Because God is still on the move. Amen? Amen. The cross is victorious. And I liken, you know, many times, I'll close with this. The kingdom of God is both present and future. And I liken this analogy, some of you history buffs, World War II, that even though Germany signed the Articles of Surrender, and the war was over, war was over, it was still several years that United States troops had to fight saboteurs and skirmishes in Germany because there were still pockets of individuals. Oh, they knew the war was over, but they just hated Americans. And they were still trying to kill us and still trying to shoot. The war was over, but the United States got the troops, the army. They were still on a cleanup operation. Listen, Christ has purchased the victory. But the church, we're on a cleanup operation. We're still fighting devils and demons and evil in this world. But even though it seems that the rats are winning the rat race, let me tell you something. To say what the old preacher said, I read the back of the book. I cheated. And it says that God's people win. So God's people need to have confidence. What America needs. Don't get too. Listen. And I say this last warning. Because it happened this past year. And some here and some left. Got so caught up. In the political divide. That it affected I believe their spiritual life. Don't get caught up in that stuff over the coming year. Don't get so consumed with all the wrangling and arguing. Be informed. Be knowledgeable. But let all that information that upsets you drive you to your knees and pray. That's not a passive activity. Pray and say, God, change me. Judge me. But God, have mercy on this nation. Instead of talking bad about the president, when was the last time you prayed for the president? If you had a son that was disturbed and troubled by drug use, wouldn't you want some mercy? Let the courts do their thing. 
Have you prayed for his son? But we make fun, we do memes, and I get caught up into it too. Again, Christians, we need to be different. We need to be different. All right, let's sing and I'll let you go.